0: Thanks for joining us for another great message from Futures Church Australia. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, blesses you, and brings you joy. For more information about our church, go online to futures.church.
1: And now for our message. Good to see you. Merry Christmas for next week. And uh, tonight's going to be absolutely awesome. It's great to be here and very excited about uh, what God wants to say to us today. If you're watching online... God wants to speak to you. I, this is a day really where, the, where you either just absorb everything or you take notes because it's going to be one of those days where I'm going to hit you with stuff uh, that you really either just need to think through, absorb the entirety of it, or uh, write down notes as much as you can and take as many of the facts. lot of them will be up on the screen today, so you should be good. But we're coming to Christmas, obviously, and every year, you know, I just travelled through Japan and Singapore these last few weeks, and and to see uh, it was amazing in Singapore. Everywhere across the city, there are Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas music, and it's like Christmas used to be in Adelaide, yeah. where everything was festive, where there was this focus on Jesus, where there's songs that weren't ashamed about the things and the truths that relate to Christmas. Yes, there was commercialism. Yes, there was those things. But there was tribute to the reason for the season. But as we approach Christmas, the question we need to ask ourselves, because the world certainly is, is the virgin birth just like Santa Claus? Is it just a fairy tale? Is it just a point to r- uh, rally around to celebrate a special time of year with family and as an opportunity to give gifts. And as I was praying about today, I thought, what I'd like to do today is just talk to you about the conviction I have, and I'm sure you have it as well, about the Bible. Because if we don't believe that the Bible is true, then we should pack up and just go to the beach. Like everybody else has done. Because if it's not true, there's just no point. Makes me feel good, it's still no point. If it's just a fairy tale or if parts of it are true. You know, you hear pastors, I've heard a few pastors say, You know, you're not sure whether I can can guarantee, you know, all of the Bible is true, but the portions in red, the portions Jesus spoke are true. Anyone heard that theory? Right? The problem is Jesus didn't actually say them. They were written about what Jesus said in the same way everything else is written. So if you can't believe what was written about what Jesus said or written about the other things, why believe what was written about what Jesus said? So we're living in a world where my truth has gone past my truth, it's gone to my conspiracy about how the world ticks and how the world operates. And so is there a true north? Is there a foundation? Is there a foundation that we can build our lives on? Because if the Bible's not true, give me another job. It's not like I was desperate and needed to have a job and I became a pastor. Back in the old days, if you became a pastor, there's just a guarantee that you got thrown to the lions or, you know, featured in a gladiator match of some kind or were killed or were forced out. And Paul writes, you know, his famous thing says, he desires to be an overseer, desires a great thing in the time where really job applications were really low because to become a pastor meant to die. So is it true or is it half true? And I wanna go through it with you today and just help you understand. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, let's read it together, shall we? That that way I can have a drink while you're reading. Could you do that? (laughs) All Scripture. Wow, it's like echoes or rounders is going on. Well, people are reading different versions on the screen. It's great. All Scripture, not some Scripture, not a few Scriptures, not the part about Jesus in the Old Testament's not true, not the parts about Jesus dying, but the resurrection's not true. All Scripture is God-breathed, some translations say, and is profitable for every part of our lives and instruction in righteousness. Today I want to talk to you about the five reasons why I have a conviction and the five reasons you should have a conviction about the Word of God. Now Hebrews 12.4, let's read this out together again. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges as thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of Him to whom... We must give an account. All Scripture, the Word of God is so powerful. It's the foundation for everything. And in a world where it's my truth or your truth, and it's really subjective about what I believe truth is, facts no longer matter. It's just my truth. And we've rebranded a lie, and we called it truth. My lie, but we've now called it my truth. And we have facts, but they're not facts. They're just Uh, Things that are random that I may accept or I may not accept. So today we're gonna talk about truth and how facts and truth come together from the Word of God. And I'll show you five reasons why we should believe. And here's why it's important because I want us to approach Christmas with this idea that this was the, other than Easter, this was the greatest day that you and I can ever experience the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the one that would take away the sins of the world, the one that would give hope to humanity, the one that could only, could only be the one that could stop wars, the only one that could divide, pull down the dividing wall between races. In the New Testament times, it was between Jews and Greeks, uh, Jews and Samaritans. What was the changing force that brought all of those changes, it was Jesus. And we can make legislation, we can outlaw everything that we may wanna outlaw to try to bring that peace to humanity, but we will fail because wickedness is in the heart of man and who can plumb or know its depth, the Bible says, that Jesus is everything. Without Jesus, nothing matters. Without Jesus, your, your life has no purpose. Without Jesus, there is no afterlife. There is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no quality of life. Without Jesus, there's nothing. And the Bible is the the records about Jesus, about God's plan for Jesus in your life and how to live. And therefore, if I can't believe the Bible fully or if questions kind of bubble to the surface all the time about what I'm reading, If it's just a fairy tale or a book of philosophy that I could pull off the shelf in any library, why on earth would I take on the Bible? It's either true or it's not true. So I wanna give you some facts. You ready? Here we go. I think some of them on the screen, some of them won't be. The Bible has 40 authors, 40 different authors from different cultures written over a span of 1,500 years, and yet, These 40 authors ranging from shepherds to kings to all kinds of people in the social strata, not to mention hundreds of years. Imagine, you know, a person who grew up in 1950 looking at what's happening now in 2023 just in relation to technology. It just would blow their mind. And yet we're talking about 1,500 years of span of time and yet all of the books harmonize with each other. That is so ridiculously out of the realm of possibility that it has to be either, well, it can only be true because the probabilities are so ridiculous. 66 different books written on three continents and three languages, a high potential for discontinuity, but there isn't. They span different genres, history, poetry, prophecy, letters. They can easily clash, but they don't. There are 30,000 or more verses in the Bible, which makes it very unlikely that this many verses would align completely, and yet they do. Given how all the other ancient documents from different times disagree with each other, it's probable that the Bible should disagree with itself. Of course, unless it was... God breathes, and the same God who fifteen hundred years ago is the same God as fifteen hundred years from then and a million years from now and a million years before, has a continuity about him that he can put into word for us. Yep. The odds that such a collection of books would form a unified whole without internal contradiction or errors are impossibly low. It takes more faith to believe that it just that. It's just all random and happens, then it was God who organized it all. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible talks about this in Luke 24. Well, before I get to that, let me just say this. You know, what's really interesting is that the authors of the New Testament referred a lot to the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's something like 250 to 300 verses in the New Testament that are directly attributable to the Old Testament writers. So the Old Testament, the New Testament writers believe what the Old Testament writers wrote and quoted them. For instance, Joshua, uh, even in referring to the Old Testament, refers to the Pentateuch uh, significantly. The The prophets later in the Old Testament referred back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets also point forward in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, to the birth of Jesus, to the death of Jesus, to the resurrection of Jesus, and to the end of time, hundreds and thousands of years before its fulfillment. Jesus himself refers to the Old Testament on the road to Emmaus as he's risen from the dead and he's taken his disciples back to a revelation of who he is. And he quotes this, and let's read this together. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary <clears throat> for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter His glory. And beginning where? With Moses and the prophets, He explained to them what was written in all the Scriptures about Himself. New Testament writers like Paul referenced and quoted the Old Testament. 16 writers over spans of thousands of years wrote 300 predictions in the Old Testament about Jesus. Over 300 predictions about His birth, His life, about Christmas, about His death, His resurrection and other things. So the writers of the Bible quote each other. Then you go to manuscript evidence, which is one of the big ones that people talk about. The total count for early New Testament manuscripts available today has gone up since uh, 20 years ago, but it's now 25,000. Dated 30 to 150 years from the events, written 80 to 49 to 95, the earliest copy dated 80 to 87, you can see it up there. Over 7,974 manuscripts in other languages, Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, and Slavic dated early century, second century, and on. Over 10,000 manuscripts in the Latin Vulgate dated from the third century and on. Compare that to Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. A thousand manuscripts dated 1,200 years after the events, written 384 to 322 BC, with the earliest copy dated 850 AD. Plato, another famous person quoted in the Western Hemisphere uh, so, so prolifically, has 210 manuscripts dated 1,200 years from the events, with the earliest copy dated AD 900. The Emperor Caesar's first-hand account of the Gallic Wars is 251 manuscripts dated 900 years from the events written 10 to 44 B.C., the earliest copy dated A.D. 1000. So the first manuscripts of the Bible were actually written within the first 25 to 150 years of the actual events taking place. So when you compare what every rational person on the planet who studied philosophy believes about the manuscripts of Plato. You don't find people say, well, I don't believe Plato. I don't believe the other Greek philosophers. I don't believe what Caesar said. Well, there's, there's all these evidence, there's these manuscripts. Well, when you compare what is treated as fact and truth for these great philosophers, Aristotle and so on, compared to what it says about Jesus and the Bible, it is so small in comparison, and yet people have a heart, no problem believing those manuscripts that relate to the Greek philosophers are true. But what is the problem then when you've got 10 times the amount that relate to Jesus and His life and the Bible and all the things that we believe? How ridiculous to have a, what does it say to us? That means there's a deliberate, non-scientific, non-philosophically uh, intelligent or honest view of these Evidences. Come on, you can clap. Number three, going fast. Number three, fulfill prophecies. So I'm gonna show you a picture on the screen in a moment, but 300 prophecies about Jesus that we talked about. Now I wanna talk to you about the probability. Let's have that uh, screenshot up. No, okay, next one. That one. The probabilities that three of the, th- sorry, eight of the 300 are, well, would be fulfilled. The eight of the prophecies, hundreds of years before Jesus, would actually be fulfilled, including his birth coming this week. And we can take it back to the previous slide, is one, to 10 and the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I try to do the comparison between Australia and America because the illustration I'm about to tell you on this is about Texas. Now, Texas is about the size, maybe a little bit smaller than New South Wales. So just think of it in that context. All the other states of Australia are much bigger continent's the same size, but the state, more, there's more states in America and less states here. So say we take 10 to the 17th power in 50 cent pieces and we lay them on the face of New South Wales. Approximately, they would cover the state, the whole state with 50 cent pieces, two feet deep, right. 0.6 of a meter, Deep. Now the chances of eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is like two foot of these coins across all of New South Wales, 0.6 of a metre deep, and only one has a red cross on it. And you have to go find, by accident, the coin with the red cross. That's just eight of the 300 prophecies because I'm guessing we're running out of zeros. One to 10 and the 17th power, two foot of 50 cent pieces in New South Wales with one coin. You finding that one coin is the probability that eight of the prophecies out of the 300 would come to pass. So you could talk about the manuscripts and the overwhelming 25,000 and 10,000 compared to hundreds. You could talk about all of the other things we've chatted about, but just in fulfilled prophecy. And then imagine blindfolding a man and telling him that he can travel as far as he wants in the whole of New South Wales, blindfold him, and just by pure accident pick up the right 50 cent piece is the chance of just getting this right. And this is what the, this is what the probabilities are of those prophets getting eight of them right. The Bible starts to take on a resonance of truth yeah. and power yeah. when you start to delve into the science and the mathematical probabilities of its existence being real today. Yeah. Number four, you can clap that one too. I think that's pretty incredible. One to 10 to seven, eight. <clears throat> Number four. The books of the New Testament, you may not know this, but the books of the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus other than two, one being Luke and Paul. uh, I think it's Paul. I'll get there in a second. It's written down here somewhere. Uh, It says this. Jesus wrote, and you remember this verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We always think about that in one context, but I want you to think about being a witness of Jesus, baptism, life of miracles, death and resurrection, would not be confined to the city of Jerusalem, not even to the outskirts of uh, Judea, but to the ends of the earth. So in Jesus' mind, there was a very important imprimatur that He was giving to His disciples. And that was, we have to be witnesses of what's just taken place to the ends of the earth. And we often assume that this verse is talking to the few short years after Jesus' ascension and that they would talk about Jesus, but it clearly says, They would be an eyewitness of Jesus and this testimony would go to the ends of the earth. Well, how does this happen? Well, it happens because eyewitnesses write down what they saw. It's why the 12th apostle who replaced Judas, remember Judas hung himself for betraying Jesus. And we look at Acts chapter one and we think the way they chose the 12th apostle, Matthias, was to flip a coin or cast lots. Truth is, long before they brought it down to casting lots, there was a very serious set of conditions required for the person to become an apostle. They had to have been with Jesus from the beginning. They had to be there watching Him get baptized. They had to be there watching Him get crucified. They had to be there watching Him ascend. They had to be there from the beginning. You had to be part of the whole group. It couldn't have come in halfway through. They had to be there for the whole lot. Why? Because they're gonna be a witness. They're not just chosen because they're a good bloke. They're chosen because we need a witness. We need a historical record. We need 12 historians who were witnesses of this event of all of the years that went by to be able to testify and to write down what happened so that everybody for all time would know about the birth of Jesus, that it was from Mary the Virgin. It was from Joseph and Mary. And tonight I'm going to tell you another story and a probability that will blow your mind as well at Carol's. It, just, it, won't, be, it won't be as deep as this, but it will show you. I want to tell you now, but I won't. we'll wait till tonight. Now these accounts were written from about the 80s, 40s to the 80s, 90s. So it's just a short period after Jesus' death and resurrection that the manuscripts start to be written, the things start to be written in the New Testament. And the Bible and the New Testament in particular has only primary source authors. That is the only books in the New Testament that were allowed into the canon of Scripture were written by eyewitnesses or two that were an assistant to two of the apostles, Peter and Paul. Another big question people have today is how do they decide with all the different writings, people were writing all kinds of things about Jesus, how do they decide on the 66 books? How do they decide on the 37 books or 27 books? How do they decide on the New Testament Scripture? Because if you watch the Da Vinci Code, You'll believe it was a conspiracy of priests. It was some political conspiracy, which is great for Hollywood to sell some tickets, but it's not history and it's not true. There's less evidence about the guy that wrote the Da Vinci Code than there is about anything that Jesus did. First thing you need to know that the Jewish Old Testament, so what's good to know is that the Jewish Old Testament is exactly the same as the Christian New Testament. Sorry. He said that a few books are in different order. The Catholic Old Testament has extra books that were added hundreds of years later. The Catholic New Testament and the Christian New Testament are exactly the same. So this is how the canon of Scripture came into being. First of all, there were, there were three things. One, there had to be apostolic origin. The book had to be written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle like Mark and Luke. This ruled out many later writings. So only eyewitnesses or their very close assistants like Mark and, uh, who was the other one I mentioned? Don't wanna get it wrong. Luke uh, were allowed into consideration. They had to be apostolic origin. There had to be an orthodoxy. In other words, the theology in the book had to align with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Books with contrary or heretical teachings were excluded. So all these books are presented. The eyewitnesses, remember there are 12, the eyewitnesses have written things about Jesus. Anything that was outside of that knowledge was excluded. Antiquity, right? The books had to have been written in the first century within living memory of the apostles. It wasn't some kind of fable that was written 400 years ago from what my grandmother told me Down through the years, we weren't sitting around a campfire and we weren't sitting around some Italian pastor and my nonna told me this story about what happened in her generation, what happened in her parents' generation. No, they had to be written in the first century AD within living memory of the apostles. Later works were ruled out. And what you gotta remember is that these followers of Jesus were being hunted by the Roman authorities. They were being hunted. They were being hunted all over the world. They were living from day to day, not knowing which day would be the last. So think about it. Well, I'm not going to let that book in. I'm about to die and my wife's about to die and my kids are going to die. We're not going to let any old thing come into. If this thing about Jesus is real, we better have the real books. There was a discretion about what was real and what wasn't that is missing from our lives today because we don't live in the context that they lived in in the first century. Just think about it, you're about to be murdered, tortured, watching your wife get tortured, and you've got to renounce the things that you believe in. You want to make sure that what people are writing and what you are believing in is good enough for you to go and die for. It brings great, great motivation to keep things right and to keep things pure. So the incentive to not only have, to to only have the Scriptures that were instantly recognizable as having an inherent authority were accepted, because this was their life. They believed in the Messiah and they would not die for just some writing that wasn't obviously from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by eyewitnesses. It was spread like this with great earnest. The early Christian community was very careful and very passionate about not attributing divine inspiration to anything. There was no, you know, uh, loose as a goose kind of approach, couldn't care less, yeah, let's add it in, sounds great, right? We're only just making up a Bible, it's fine. Their life depended on it being real this is not real, really? Are we gonna suffer for something that's not real? Our lives, there's too many other good things to do than to suffer for something that's written by Johnny down the street that doesn't make sense. Yeah, very good. Yeah. I'm not giving my life before I'm with a guy down, down in Victoria wrote. I wouldn't give my life for anyone who wrote anything for Victoria. <laughs> if you're a Victorian, we're glad you're here. The debate was always the same. Did this book have apostolic authority? Does it go back to the apostles? I can imagine people would have thought to themselves after they had been to the Corinthian church, gee, I wish Paul had written this and this and this to the Corinthians. In fact, there was a 1 Corinthians 3. Sorry, there was a, a third book of Corinthians, a third epistle of Corinthians that they rejected. But you can imagine people going along going, I've been to that church. They didn't, we need to add a couple of other letters to this whole bunch of letters because they've got real problems in the youth ministry, the music ministry, and every other ministry. So we better write some stuff, and they did, but it was rejected, but it wasn't from apostolic origin. Finally and totally confirmed in 367 AD that the 27 books were the canon of Scripture and there was clear evidence over time and persecution and eyewitnesses thousands and thousands of times over that these were the books. When your life depends on it, you want to make sure something's real. Not to mention how many manuscripts that had to be thrown away if they made one single error. There was no allowance for 10% mistakes. It was either right or it was wrong. When I used to work in the bank and I used to be uh, typing up mortgage documents, if those mortgage, this is back before the computers, uh, and typing up mortgage documents, if those mortgage documents weren't perfect and they were going to the LTO, the Lands Titles Office, they had to be ripped up and done again. Every detail matters when it's your land. And every detail about Jesus mattered. Every detail about the inspired Word of God mattered so that people, when they hand-wrote these things, if they were wrong, they were thrown away and they started again. Care was taken. And God knows how to use the human to preserve the divine. The fifth evidence. Let's go through the four evidences so far. Number one, you can remember what number one is? Unity. The unity of the Bible from various authors over 1,500 years. Number two, manuscript evidence. Number three, fulfilled prophecy. How ridiculous. Could you find a 50 cent piece in all of New South Wales with that kind of probabilities? No, no chance. Number four, the books of the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus of apostolic origin. And number five, probably the most compelling. I remember having this epiphany myself when I wrote a, uh, uh, an assignment in my Bible college time about the Bible. The greatest evidence. All those evidences I've mentioned to you are true. They cannot be withstood. The power is compelling. The logic is so tight and so easy to follow. It takes someone who really doesn't want to believe the Bible to turn their eyes away from the evidence that's before them. A person with a bias, they don't want it to be right. Well, of course, you can say that about everything and everybody does. Well, I don't believe it wise. I just don't wanna believe it. Even if it's a fact, it's not my truth. But these facts are so unassailable. They're so compelling. They're so powerful. But the greatest of them all, the greatest evidence of the birth of Jesus, the greatest evidence of the life of Jesus, the greatest evidence of the death of Jesus, the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is the changed life that Jesus brings. And when you meet people like I have, tens of thousands of them, Over the years, I've met people that are churchgoers uh, whose lives have not been changed. They're just doing it as a tradition. But I have met people who were addicted to substances they could not control, to things that had ruined their lives, whose, whose, whose bodies were racked and who were sick. And yet when they encountered the living Jesus, He changed their life. He changed their marriage. He changed their body. I remember sitting as a 14-year-old, and there are many stories, but this one, when you're a teenager, kind of comes back to me. As a 14-year-old sitting in a seat in the back in the Apollo Stadium, which they have knocked down these days, but the old Apollo Stadium. And I was sitting there in a service, and someone was preaching, a guest speaker come to the state, and churches had united for this. And I was sitting there as a 14-year-old. I was a cricket player. It was summer. And uh, three or four months earlier, I'd gone down to Edithburg to do some uh, rabbit shooting and so on and as it turned out I slipped on the ground and in the middle of the night as we run out of petrol the uh, car that the guys are pushing ran over my ankle and uh, my ankle became so swollen then I was on crutches and because you know my parents were of that generation they didn't bother going to the hospital and seeing what needed to be done you'll be right you'll be right mate just put some bandages and some crutches and suck it up you'll be good so the problem was that it healed. It healed, but I couldn't run. I could walk, but I couldn't run. Which is very frustrating when I'm at school, just up here at Gillis Plains, and I'm, and I'm trying to go to school, I'm trying to run after a ball playing cricket, and I just have to stop because I was in such pain. And I'm sitting in the service in the Apollo Stadium, and as I'm sitting there, the person's talking about someone being healed, talking about a a story of someone they prayed for that was healed of some life-threatening disease. And as I sat there, uh, something hit me just in my heart about how true this was. And I just remember feeling, just this feeling sitting in my seat. No one prayed for me. No one asked me to come forward. There was no raising of hands. I was just sitting there. But as the Word of God, which produces faith, went out and started to be preached, the Bible says that when, when faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, why do we preach? Because as I'm preaching, what you don't even realize is the Holy Spirit are taking the words that I say, even the stammering lips that I may have, and He's de- changing that substance of words into a substance called faith, and He's depositing it in your heart. You gotta understand the reason why you should be in church, the reason why you should be in this atmosphere, the reason why you should be listening is this, is because when, I don't know why God dictates this. This is God's idea not our idea but God said the proclamation of my word would produce faith he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now we think of that means reading the Bible, but the context in Romans chapter 10 is who, who, how will they hear about the gospel unless we send somebody? And how will they hear unless that person preaches? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And that faith is the word rhema. It was mean God takes the general Word of God and makes it specific to you. And as this preacher was preaching the general Word of God, about this story. This is how powerful the Holy Spirit is. As He's talking about some story in another city at another time, I'm sitting in that audience and God takes the words that are coming out of His mouth and He combines it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the time they reach my ears, they have become faith. They've become a rhema word. They've gone deep into my heart and suddenly I get it. I can be healed. I didn't believe I could be healed before, except yes, I kind of did, but I believe I could be healed. Oh, yeah. on, then thought nothing of it as a 14-year-old went out to see where the girls were. <laughs> went to school the next day, didn't think about it twice. I was literally sitting in a service. The guy's preaching about another story somewhere. God takes words and turns them into the substance Called miracle faith. So by the time it reaches my ears, it's now potent, powerful, and able to fix a body that's sick and unwell, a leg that couldn't run. I was a sports fanatic. I played six sports a year. I was, you know, I was so into those sports. Sitting there for five seconds. <sighs> The ancient manuscript preached in the modern context with a story to illustrate, like a parable. As I'm sitting there listening about the Jesus who heals today, who wants to come and heal your body. Who not only wants to heal your soul so that you go to heaven, but who wants to fix your body and to fix your sickness and to fix the ailments of your life? That wants to come and penetrate what the enemy wants to do to you or your family's life and bring life where there's death and to bring health where there's hopelessness and to bring a new day where there's no day to come after that child that's sick or that child that's away from God and to put into your heart a faith that just came from a declaration that I can believe, I will believe, I do believe that God's gonna cause healing to come and God's gonna cause that young person to come back and God's gonna cause my marriage to be healed. God's gonna cause my workplace to be changed. God's gonna cause that addiction to be freed from my life and the next day up here at Gillis Plains we're out at lunchtime playing a game of cricket and I was in the outfield because I was injured and someone hit the ball and instinctively I'd forgotten all about it forgotten about my injury Forgotten that I'm not, I can't run now. It's been months that I can't run. Months since my leg's fine, but I can't run. There's a scar right here. It's really funny because whenever I go through uh, airport security, it always comes up with something down here when I go through the metal detector. It's a very strange thing Jane and I talk about often, but it's a funny thing. I get up and go after this ball, and then I, the ball's about to go to the boundary line, so I sprint. And I grab the ball, but I stop and let the ball go to the boundary line because suddenly I realise I can run. (laughs) I hadn't realized I couldn't run until I realized I could run. And I, you know, for months and months, I've not been able to run. For months and months, this injury has plagued me. It threatens my sporting future and my desire to do outside, outdoor things and sports. But sitting in a service... Five seconds of God's Word, the Word of God preached out of the mouth of some random stranger. With a heart that's open, but with God's Word that's more powerful than any heart that may be ready or not ready. It penetrates into my heart. Next day I get up and I'm sprinting and from that day on, just sprinted like I did before, like I'd never been run over, like nothing had ever happened to my ankle, like nothing had ever broken, like nothing had ever been damaged. I was back to my brilliant self. How do I know the Word of God is true? Historically, it matches up with everything you could ever investigate. But in the now, in the here and now, its words still resonate with the same power they did when they were written as eyewitnesses of Christ. And as we come to celebrate this Christmas, we're not just coming to celebrate Jesus meek and mild. We're not coming to celebrate some nice event where we get to give gifts to one another. Oh, isn't that so lovely? And I hope that everyone gets on this year. Isn't that the great prayer? Wouldn't that be a miracle this year? If you and your relatives had a great day, on Christmas Day. Instead of like, oh gee, I'm glad they're gone, aren't you? Just being keeping it real, everybody. Just keeping it real. Now this event that we're about to celebrate, we're about to sing about tonight, is so potent, so powerful, so penetrating, so indiscriminate. It doesn't say you deserve it and you don't. This grace from God comes in the form of Jesus, a little child. Why did He come as a little child? So there would be no threat. He would come as someone that would grow up and we would understand, understands us. But through the power of His name, every knee would bow, every name bow. He is the name that is above every other name. You could name a sickness. His name is above that name. You can name an ailment. His name is above that name. The name of Jesus is more powerful than cancer. The name of Jesus is more powerful than being a cripple. The name of Jesus is more powerful than a kidney problem. The name of Jesus is more powerful than a brain tumor. The name of Jesus is more powerful than a broken marriage. The name of Jesus is more powerful than your problems, your addictions, your fear, your anxiety, or your depression. How do I know the Bible is the Word of God? Because it works today, because it heals today, because it changes lives today. I look at the people, I've been around long enough now to see the lives of people over decades. The ones that have followed the words, Jesus said it this way, and I saw a wise man who built his life on the rock. He who listens to me and follows my words, Jesus said, is like the man who builds his life on the rock. And though the storms come, because storms will come, because we're living in a fallen world full of sin. Storms will come. So though the storms do come, that man's house will not fall because his house has been built upon my words, upon who I am, upon the truth of who Jesus is. But a foolish man, and I've met many of them, It's like the man who hears my word but doesn't obey it and builds his life on other things. It's like building your house on sand. So that when the storms come, when the hurricanes come, the tornadoes come, the tsunamis come, which they will because we live in a fallen world, that man, that woman, that young adult, that teenager will not stand. Why? Because He said the only thing that creates a stable, long-term success for your life is Jesus is the foundation of everything, that His words are the foundation of everything, that what God wrote about Him, everything in the Bible, if you look with the eyes of it about being about Jesus, points to the Messiah, points to the birth of Jesus. 300 prophecies with a probability that's astronomical, that can't even be counted, And this same Jesus is personal and came as a baby so He could be approachable and personable. And all He says is, listen, if you will believe in Me. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever, not just good people, but whosoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. To all those that call upon His name, there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. Choose your religion if you must. Choose your philosophy if you like. But there is only one name at which the demons tremble. There is only one name. where the the crowns of all of us will be cast before, that name is Jesus. There is only one Jesus and there is only one way. He is the way to God. He is the way to everything. He is the way to everlasting life. He is the way to healing. This Christmas, let's put Christ back in the Christmas in our hearts. Not just, let's have a fun time, let's celebrate, but let's remember, wow. Wow. Because of this day, I'm able to live triumphant. I don't read a book full of fables and a book of of philosophies and a book of good ideas and a book of sayings and nice fortune cookie sayings. I am living a life based on the name of Jesus, the one who died for me, saved me, set me free and healed me. And I could go time after time after time where in the name of Jesus, as it was proclaimed, got mixed with this substance that God dropped called faith and it converted into faith that changed my ability to believe. And I could take it to person after person. So the question is, what are you gonna do with him this Christmas? Is Santa Claus gonna be the predominant theme in your Christmas? Have fun with Santa Claus. But don't forget that that was just made up by a marketing company in 1940. But Jesus, the real deal, the one whose birthday we celebrate, it doesn't matter which part of the year you celebrate His birthday. Some people get, well, He wasn't born on December the 25th. Who cares? Don't be so religious to get hung up on a day and miss the point. Straining nets. Doesn't matter. Just matters that we're gonna celebrate for every day. We should be celebrating His birth. My birthday's in January. And this week, the campus pastors and board and elders celebrated my birthday. It's one of those best birthdays ever really was so awesome because I didn't get any older. (laughs) But we celebrated my birthday like the perfect birthday. It was so cool. I don't think I'll turn up to the one in January. (laughs) Just stay what I am. What are you gonna do with Jesus this Christmas? What are you gonna do with the Bible for 24? Let me give you a something that you put in your heart for 24. Let's say, we want more in 24. God, we want more in 24. We want more in 24. We want more of you in 24, less of me. We want more of you and less of the rubbish. More of you and less of all the concerns. More of you. We want more. What are you gonna do with Jesus today? And I'd love us to close your eyes for a moment. Maybe you're in this place. And there are three types of people that I want to talk to. There are people in this place that have never ever given your life to Jesus. And Jesus is the only way to have purpose and to connect with God, to understand your purpose in life and your reason for living. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. The second person is the person that once believed in Jesus, you kind of have moved Jesus from the center of your life to the kind of the periphery, to a side thing. Once you used to pray and be on fire for God, but He's just at the side of your life, no longer the center of your life. I want to pray for you too. And there are other people today that if you were to die today, you're not sure you would go to heaven. Well, I can tell you at the age of six, I put my hand up in church. I didn't think my dad saw it, but he did. And they forced me to give my life to Jesus, but I didn't really get saved. I went along with it. And I wondered why for the next 10 years going to church, I wasn't sure if Jesus came back where I would go or if I would die, I would go to heaven. But when I had a revelation of Jesus at 17, which changed my life, there has been no doubt since that day, because you can say the sinner's prayer and be unsure. But you can't be totally revolutionized by Jesus and be unsure. So if you're unsure, it's time to be revolutionized by Jesus.
0: I pray this sermon has blessed you, encouraged you and inspired you. You know, we may never have met. I may not know you, but God knows you. And I'll tell you today, God loves you. That even before you knew about Him, He loved you. And He has a plan and a purpose for your life. who can turn things for good and loves you. He's a father, he's a friend, and you can invite him into your life today by simply saying this prayer after me. I'm gonna say this prayer and wherever you are, wherever you're watching around the world, pray this prayer with me. Maybe you once knew God and you walked away. You know what, maybe he's getting your attention today to say, come back into relationship with me. Maybe you've known religion, but never a real genuine relationship with God. Why don't you say this prayer too? And I believe this can be the beginning I'm so glad you prayed that prayer today. I believe that as you did, the peace, the grace, and the love of God comes into your life. You know what, the past is real, but it doesn't have to dictate your future. Let the love, the grace, and the word of God go with you from this day forward. And I believe the best days are ahead for you. If you prayed this prayer or you want to know more, maybe you're on the journey, why don't you flick us an email so we can send you some material about following Jesus. We can maybe connect you with a local church near you that you can do life with, get good people around you, and we would love to pray with you. I'm so glad you prayed that prayer. I'm so glad you're on the journey of following Jesus. I'm so glad you listened today. God bless.